It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. If you've been listening to this podcast and you have your stuff together with finances and you're thinking, what's next for me? You might consider becoming a financial coach. This is my bread and butter. This is what I do full time. It's a ton of fun. You get to help people accomplish their financial goals and really take their lives to the next level with your support and guidance. It's literally the best career ever. And because there's a lot of people that do want to become a financial coach that listen to this podcast, I wanted to give you an opportunity to join my latest free training. It's called 90 Days to $1,000 as a Financial Coach. So it teaches you how to get your first 1K as a financial coach within. 90 days. It's a free training, again, totally free. There's no strings attached there, but you do need to sign up and you can sign up at whitneyhansoncom slash BFC training. BFC as in become a financial coach, become financial coach training. whitneyhansoncom slash BFC training. I hope to see you in the training. I know it will give you a good framework to work off of. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Hello, hello. How the heck are you? I hope you're having a great week. I know I definitely am. It's been a productive one, which is always a good thing. Something about the new year is just super rejuvenating for me and gives me that new place to start and just to think about my goals and my life and all of that fun stuff. So I've been really enjoying this time of year for sure. Now, I know this time of year also brings a lot of potentially difficult conversations. There's conversations where you might be thinking about, is this the right career for me? Am I being underpaid? Is my spouse and I actually, are we really on the same page with money? How do I talk to my parents about wills and estates and their retirement accounts? All of this stuff is really, really confusing. And for some reason, the new year tends to trigger this in a lot of people. And that's why I was so excited to bring on today's guest. Before we dive into a little bit of today's guest background, I have to share a fun money win with you. This money win comes from Chad. Chad says $12,000 net worth, paid off car, less than $15,000 in student loans, less than $20,000 total debt, maxed HSA, over 1K in an IRA, and over $30,000 net income. Hashtag money win. Chad, that was a killer year. I'm so proud of you for all of your hard work. And man, my friend, you are probably one of the most consistent people I've ever seen. So congrats to you and your money win and way to keep hustling. I'm super, super proud of you. Guys, if you want to join in the conversation and you want to share your money wins with me, the best place is either the Facebook group, Manage Your Money Like a Boss, or on my Instagram. I pretty much live on Instagram these days. It's embarrassing, but I do. You can ask my screen time. And I am at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co. So come say hello, share your money wins. I will be cheering you on pretty much the loudest person in the room cheering you on with your money wins. So come say hi over there. All right, let's dive into today's guest. You are probably familiar with Erin because she's been on this podcast a couple times before. Erin Lowry is the author of the three-part Broke Millennial series, including Broke Millennial, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, which is such a good book, by the way, you guys, and Broke Millennial Talks Money, Scripts, Stories, and Advice to Navigate Awkward Financial Conversations. Her first book was named A Market Watch as one of the best money books of 2017, and her style is often described as refreshing and conversational. She has been featured in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and on CBS Sunday Morning, CNBC, and even The Rachel Ray Show. Erin is such a rock star when it comes to these really awkward conversations. She does put a lot of research and work into everything she puts out there. And so I think you guys are going to get a ton from this episode. I know I definitely did. It was super, super helpful. And just thinking through how the heck do I navigate all these conversations in my own life? 
So in this episode, we cover a lot of ground. We talk a lot about how to ask salary-related questions around the workplace. Yes, this is illegal for some companies, but there's delicate ways that you can do it. So we talk about how you might approach that, how to do effective research to understand wages and see if you're being underpaid, and also what to do if you find out some of your coworkers are also underpaid, when the right time to ask for a raise might be, how to delicately start a conversation with your parents about their financial situations, creative ways to talk about money with your family, when to loan money to friends and family, and how to think about that process. This is so huge. I know there's so many people that always ask me this question too, so it was really great to get Aaron's feedback. Why Aaron is team prenup? Guys, me too, side note. And social stigmas of prenups. This is such an important conversation for so many people, and I really was excited to hear her talk about that. And lastly, importance of maintaining the same goals as your partner. This was such a good conversation. I know you guys are going to get so much value from it. So let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with my friend, Erin Lowry. What's up, guys? I am so excited to be chatting with Erin Lowry again. Erin's been on a couple times before, and you guys always request her to come back on. So I had to get her back on. Erin, thank you so much for hanging out. Well, thanks for having me back. Always. You have like a revolving door around here in the money nerds world. So thank you so much. But tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since pandemic. How's everything going for you guys? Oh, pandemic life. So I am New York City based. So we definitely had it hard in the beginning. And we are recording this in December. So things are peaking a little bit again, but it's nothing like it was in the beginning of all of this. And we stayed in New York through it all. We did not leave. But rents prices are coming down. So I guess a thank you to anyone who did leave New York City, because now I can get a much cheaper apartment. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Are you working on negotiating that? Or are they offering that? So we are actually planning to move apartments because rent has come down so significantly in Manhattan that we're actually going to go into Manhattan for a little bit. I've lived in Queens for almost 10 years. Dude, that's so exciting. Yeah. That'll be fun. Okay, okay. So everything's going okay. And then you are now launching a new book. Tell us a little bit about the book. I am. So book number three, rounding out the trilogy that is Broke Millennial, and it's Broke Millennial Talks Money, Scripts, Stories, and Advice to Navigate Awkward Financial Conversations, because I just had to come up with the most mouthy tagline (laughs) on the end of that. Why why this book? So your other two are really, really great. You've got one on investing. You've got one on general personal finance. So why awkward money conversations? Well, the first two are so technical and I think logical, if anything, where, you know, first you got to get it together and you know build that strong foundation. And then you've got to start building wealth with investing. And then it's sort of like, what's next? And I think a lot of people were like, broke millennial has a baby, broke millennial buys a house. Well, this one has not done either of those things. So A, I wasn't going to write about it. And B, fundamentally, I have realized over all the years I have done this job is that what causes us the most pain is talking about money. We Mm. can get it all together for ourselves, but if you cannot have healthy, honest, meaningful conversations with the people in your life about finances, it's still going to be a pain point for you. Even if you know how to budget like a boss, even if you know how to invest, even if your savings goals are just completely on fire, but if you can't tell your best friend, hey, that's a little bit out of my budget. Or if you can't ask your parents, hey, am I going to be your retirement plan in the future? Or if you can't talk to your husband or wife about money, at the end of the day, it's still a problem. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think we both see a lot of that. Even in my own daily life, I see that sometimes too, where it doesn't necessarily come up in like, that's not in my budget or that's not a priority. But sometimes even in how much money I earn, I kind of shy away from that, from sharing that with a lot of people too. But I'm curious, when you were going through the research process for this book and you were trying to put together things, what were the common themes that you found when it comes to talking about money? One of the big ones was what people wanted covered. I started asking that a lot very early on because I think there's just so many of the kind of common tropes and topics that I love talking about, like how do you handle money in a marriage and how do you decide who 
who pays for the check when you go on a date? And that's a big part of the reason that I say this isn't necessarily a relationships and money book because people think romance when they think that. No, this book is split up into four sections, work, family, friends, and romance. So it's all of those important conversations. And I noticed that a lot of the questions that started coming up were one, talking to coworkers about salaries and how do I negotiate? Yeah. Then a big one was coming up with friends, trying to figure out how to set healthy boundaries with your friends, particularly as we start to age and we all start to hit these different milestones in our lives where you might make the same amount of money as your best friend, but maybe she got married and had a kid and bought a house and you're living that single life and are renting and you have very different financial priorities and obligations at that point. Mm -hmm. Or Maybe you're making the same amount of money, but you're carrying $60,000 of student loan debt and your best friend's parents paid for her to go to college. So again, very different actual situations. So a lot of it too was like, how do I tell my friend I can't afford to do that? Or how do I nicely tell my sister that I can't afford to her Tulum bachelorette party or what have you? I mean, there's always so many things. Hmm. And I, I think it's so important. So when any of these types of conversations, does it start in the same place or is are they all approached kind of differently? Well, they're a little bit of nuance, but fundamentally, and this is, you know, a kind of cliche answer, but it's true. This really is about honesty and communication at the end of the day. And so much of this just has to be the willingness to openly engage in these conversations. Now, the openness gets to vary. You are not obligated to tell your friends, hey, I have $12,000 of credit card debt, and that's why it's really hard for me to do X, Y, Z things without feeling really stressed about it. You don't have to tell them. But it is helpful to say, hey, I'm actually trying to pay off some debt right now, and that's part of the reason that I just can't keep doing whatever the event is here. Mm -hmm. You definitely also need to assess the different situations you're in. Like obviously talking to your coworker and asking how much money do you make is a very different scenario than should you even ask your friend in the first place or sure. should you tell your parents how much you earn? Like that's all going to vary a little bit. With your coworker, there's a logical reason that you might want to know. You know, you're up for a raise, you're trying to get a promotion, you're trying to see if there's a, a racial or a gender-based wage gap. So it makes sense that you have that information, but if you're just curious why your friend flitted off to Amsterdam for a weekend trip last month and that's why you're trying to ask how much they make, uh, <laughs> that's not really your business. Perhaps not. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> Let's talk about the work one since you brought that up because I think there's a lot of people are afraid and maybe can't even legally ask how much do you make because of company policies and stuff. Is there workarounds for that or is there a way to approach that conversation? There is. So first addressing the legal aspect, most people legally can ask. There's mm. very few exceptions to that rule. Now, the problem is just because it's illegal for your company to fire you for asking, they can still find another way. Hmm. They'll just look for a different reason to fire your ass if they want to get rid of you. So that's mm. why you really need to be careful about how you're asking and who you're asking. You know your workplace culture. You have a sense of whether or not that's an acceptable conversation to be having and if there's safe people for you to be asking. And if the answer, if you're listening to this and you're like, girl, there is nobody I can talk to at work. And maybe it's also because you work for a small company and nobody does your position, which is also a valid reason. So this is where social media and things like LinkedIn really come into play because Listen, we got our glassdoors.coms and our salary.coms and whatnots. And yes, you can go online and try to look up this information there. But what's more important, truthfully, is to cold pitch people on LinkedIn and start asking them how much they're earning. And there's a few different nuanced ways you can do that. One is using the over-under strategy. Are you making over or under $50,000 or whatever the amount of money is? And you need to be asking people that are relevant to you. And you should also explain to them why you're asking. Hi, I'm up for a big negotiation at work. I kind of have a little bit of a sense that I might be actually currently underpaid for the market. So I was curious if you could tell me, do you make over or under $50,000? This information would be really helpful for me in negotiating. You've given them a reason. You're not just emailing them out of the blue. Well, I mean, you are, but you have a reason to be emailing them out of the blue. Right. And you want to make sure that anybody that you're asking has a few factors in common. One, they do the same type of job you do. 
at either the same company or a similar company to you in the same area. So like you in Boise, me in New York City, those are not comparable cost of living areas. It makes Mm -hmm. sense why people doing certain jobs in New York would be earning more than somebody doing a comparable job in Boise. So it is important that you ask people in either the same or very relatively similar job markets as well. Okay. That makes perfect sense. So you would send those emails out. Ideally, like maybe weird question, but how how far in advance would you do that? Like, are you finding it takes people a month to check their LinkedIn and get back to people? So like, is this something you need to be super forward thinking with, or can you do it a little bit more spontaneously? I would be quite forward thinking. I would also blast them. So a woman that I interviewed for the book and who actually did this practice, she emailed, I think over 20 different people and got four or five responses. Another negotiating expert that I spoke to recommended trying to get at least three men and at least three women. So think about like Uh, probably 15 men and 15 women at least in order to get three of them to respond to you. And you want to be doing that to try to get a broader sample size and also try to control for things like a gender wage gap. Now, the other thing you want to consider is when you should actually be asking for a raise. If we're talking like traditionally employed, I'm going in and asking for a raise slash promotion this year. You don't want to be asking at your job performance review time, because if that's traditionally when your company is giving raises, then your company has probably actually already set the budget. So they're good. So you need to ask usually about three months prior to having that review meeting. And you can figure out what that timing is based on like, you could ask HR, you could ask your manager, when do we normally do raises and or performance reviews and kind of backwards plan from there. If they, you know, normally happen at the end, then by September, October, you should sit down with your manager and have a conversation about, hey, I'm interested in getting a raise. I would love to have a conversation about what that looks like and what I can do to get that raise. So you've got to be planting those seeds early. So let's assume somebody's maybe new to a company and they've been there, let's say, less than one year. Is it ever too early to negotiate more? You know, I asked that question and one of the things was like, if you just started, it's not time. Like if you started last week, no, you're not negotiating for more money. (laughs) That'd be cool though. You just had a chance. Yeah, but like you just had your chance. You just got hired. So Exactly. I do think if you're coming up on a year, that's a perfectly acceptable amount of time because you've, you know, you've proven your track record. Now, whether or not you're going to be up for a big promotion opportunity, that kind of depends on the kind of market you're in. But if your company has a cadence of really doing annual raises, it's not inappropriate if it's only been 10 months or so in most industries. Now, industries do vary. Some of them have much harder, stricter lines in the sand Mm -hmm. on that topic. Okay. So we're, we've got our research done. We reached out to about 30 different people in order to get hopefully, you know, five to 10 good responses would be awesome. But we've got some data. We know we're either underpaid. We'll assume that's the case. So you're underpaid for your current job. You go into that first conversation like, yo, I'm going to negotiate my salary. Here's why I believe I, I am underpaid. How, how do you actually structure that? Like, how do you, usually the typical response is like, oh no, like that's how much we pay everybody or your job description hasn't changed or some bullshit excuse like that. How do we approach that? Well, first I wouldn't go in guns blazing saying that you're underpaid because Anymore, you're just putting... Yeah, you're just putting somebody on the de- the defense as opposed to trying to have a collaborative conversation that you both get something that you want. You don't want to go in and be like, hey, I'm underpaid. What's up? You <laughs> Can you imagine? It would be great. But let's be honest, people don't respond well to that. So it really does need to be more of you going in and asking for what you want and demonstrating why you feel you deserve that. Now, in a lot of cases, and this was an interesting point from most of the negotiation experts, that typically your boss knows if you're doing a good job and if you deserve to have a raise. You very rarely actually need to go in with all of these proof points of, you know, I am productivity from my team 15% since I took over for manager or Mm. this client said XYZ thing about me. Like, should you have it in the back of your head? Yes, of course. But your manager also probably already knows. This is an opportunity where I think asking for constructive criticism several months in advance of the raise conversation is where you can kind of set yourself up of what can I do? I would like to get a raise and or promotion. What can I do to get there? get that feedback, and then go out and do it. 
so that when you come back to the table, you're like, hey, hey I've done these things. Can we talk about the race? Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. And it does. And the other thing to remember is if you keep getting pushback or stalled out or what have you at your company, it is time to shop around for a new employer. Amen. Yep. I, I see that so often too, where people get pigeonholed into a, a job or a role that doesn't necessarily progress further either. And they get stuck and can't seem to figure out like why their career isn't progressing from a financial standpoint, even from a fulfillment standpoint. So I like that you mentioned you might have to shop around. I think that's really good advice. And oftentimes, too, you statistically earn more money, get bigger raises if you do hop for a different company compared to trying to leverage that up within your own. And the other thing to consider is if you unearth a gender or racial wage gap for yourself at your office, it is okay for you to bring that up to them directly if you'd like. But then normally you do have to like name names of proof points. The other thing to consider, though, is trying to negotiate to close that gap can be really tough. Like if it's a 20% negotiation in order to even just catch up with what everybody else is earning, first of all, when raises all come around, they're probably then just going to get bumped up again. Mm-hmm. And if you like, if you do 20% just to catch up, but then they all get five more percent, you, you didn't really you're catch up. Right. And it's also a big ask because if you're trying to get 20, you're probably going to go in and ask for 25 or 27 or 30 to meet down at 20, as opposed to just going in and asking for 20. And that's also where it can be helpful to just be like, you know, screw this. I'm going to go try to negotiate more at a different company. Mm-hmm. I totally agree too. I wanted to start with the work piece because I think that's the most relevant for so many people thinking about their careers and, you know, trying to earn more money. I'm such a believer that you need to be prioritizing earning more. Like that is the greatest thing. You can cut expenses all day long, but earning more just helps so much. So I'm grateful that you shared a little bit of that conversation. Let's talk a little bit about family. What the heck are some of the awkward conversations that come up in families that um, maybe are a little bit less typical? Well, one that I would say is perhaps less typical, but honestly, the most critical is the conversation with your parents about both their retirement plans and their estate plans. And not to be a Debbie Downer, but a couple of things, particularly for millennials and Gen Xers. As our parents are aging, it's really critical to understand financially, are they set? Will they be able to take care of themselves? And if they can't, can you take care of them? And that can look a myriad of ways. It could be financially supporting them and them still having autonomy. It could be them moving in to live with you and having a multi-generational household. Now, for some people, culturally, this is a default. Mm -hmm. Obviously, your parents are moving in with you or obviously you're going to be supporting your parents. But for others, it comes as a surprise. And you also have to think about what that means for a spouse. So as you might marry somebody of a different culture than yourself, and then that also becomes a conversation about how to navigate that with your partner. So, so many tie-ins that the family dynamic can impact us. And it's really important to start asking questions and understanding early because you want to be making decisions, one, when your parents are still able to do so for themselves, and two, just so you start to get a sense like, hey, I think I'm going to financially need to support them in some capacity. So I need to make sure my financial life is structured in a way to accommodate for that. Hmm. How do you begin that conversation too? Cause I can imagine, actually, I know I had, I tried to do this Aaron recently with my mom. <laughs> yeah. Shit hit the fan. I did not do well. I failed miserably. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like I'm not great at it. So I presume I went wrong in multiple places, but how do you delicately start that conversation? Delicate is a great word to use because I think that that's what we need to focus on. First of all, we should never come in guns blazing about it. We should (laughs) never come in like presuming that we know more. The other part is we have to respect the fact that this can be a little bit of a shift in the parent-child paradigm and that you are kind of trying to parent your parents. And that can be deeply uncomfortable for your parents. And who knows, depending on their situation, they might feel embarrassment about where they are. They might be kind of offended that you're even asking. So in terms of language to use, one of my favorite techniques is asking for advice and using that advice for context clues. So, hey, mom, I just started a new job and I'm trying to set up my 401k. I'm curious when you were going through this, how did you handle it? 
Now, if that's inauthentic because she, you run the Money Nerd podcast and she's like, I know you're not coming to me to ask for financial advice, <laughs> which could be the case. If your parents knows that you're like a total money nerd and they're not, that you wouldn't be coming to ask for that. Then you can also say something like, hey, Jackie was just telling me how her parents decided to move down to Florida in retirement. Have you guys started thinking at all about what you want your retired lives to look like? And even a flippant response like, oh, we're never going to be able to retire, that yeah. gives you a lot of information. Hmm. So what do we do with that? Well, put a pin in it for right then. I wouldn't keep poking at it in that exact moment. If you have siblings, I would also start engaging in a conversation with them, seeing if they've ever gotten information from mom and dad, and also having a conversation between all of you about what you're thinking in terms of if we do need to support mom and dad, what do we think that's going to look like? But down the road, I think you just kind of keep coming back to that. Like, hey, I was thinking the other month when you mentioned that you're not going to be able to retire. Did you mean because you're just going to want to keep working? You don't want to retire? Or do you mean like financially you don't think it's an option? See mm-hmm. what they say. Okay. And then kind okay. of keep gently, if you will, pushing from there. There are parents who are going to completely stonewall. And in that case, I think it's also a consideration of one, if they're just stonewalling about the finances of it, there are things that you can do to, hey, maybe you gift them a session with a certified financial planner to look over their retirement benefits and packages and social security information and see what's up. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you just start an emergency fund with your siblings that all of you contribute to every month so that there's a stash of cash in case something happens. Or maybe you think about the kind of house you're going to buy in the future and if mom and dad might need to live with you. Like There are just things that you can kind of handle and think about. On the flip side, the one that I do think you need to push harder on, and especially if they're stonewalling, estate planning. And Mm. I'm not talking wills. Like, yeah, wills are important and good, but what is more important are the things that are handled when they're still alive, but may not be able to make choices for themselves. We're talking power of attorney and healthcare proxy, advanced healthcare directives, advanced medical directives. There's kind of different language that gets used. Those documents really, really matter because if something were to happen, a stroke and they can't make their own decisions, Alzheimer's and they can't make their own decisions, extended stay in the hospital for whatever reason, and you need to be able to pay their bills or make a decision for them, you legally don't have the right if you don't have this paperwork handled. So it's really important that they get this taken care of so that if anything were to happen, you legally step in and get it handled. And one of the things I always push on you having this conversation with them about is saying stuff like, in a time of stress or in a time of grief, I A, want to know what you want because it's going to it's going to be written down. And B, I need to make sure I can immediately focus on your care and I don't have to be trying to like battle a legal system to get access to make decisions for you because otherwise a court might just assign somebody and it might not even be somebody that you're related to. God, see, that's so scary, too. Yeah, it is. And I I hate using scare tactics for parents, but that's why I think it's good to bring it back to, like, me. It's going to cause me pain. It's going to cause me grief if we don't take care of this. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And honestly, like, this is the exact conversation I was having with my mom was not so much about retirement. I already know she started late. Like, it is what it is, whatever. But it's the healthcare piece. It's the estate planning. It's all of that crap. And I don't know if this is the best approach, but what I'm personally doing with my family, since there's six siblings counting me, like we've got a big family. So what we're actually going to be doing is I'm hosting, I'm hosting an advanced care planning <laughs> party where we're going to go through and we're just going to all create a directive it, it, like together in one room. So that's something that I'm trying. I'll keep you guys posted if that actually works. Who knows? That is such a good idea because that's another way to bring up the conversation is similar to that 401k one, particularly with wills and advanced healthcare directives and power of attorney. Hey, I just got married and we're trying to figure all of this out. Do you have a lawyer recommendation for us? How did you guys figure this out? How did you decide who was going to be your power of attorney or healthcare proxy? Those kind of conversations. The other thing that can work and... I say this because it is my own anecdotal experience of one person in my experience, but sometimes deploying an in-law can be really impactful because if you think about also whenever you're talking to a parent about kind of an end of life planning scenario, they are having to envision a really shitty scenario, part of Mm -hmm. me, a really 
unproductive scenario for themselves in that like no one wants to think about I don't have agency over my own body. I can't make my own decisions. I can't care for themselves. It is a painful reality to consider. And I might be leaving my children behind. That is all so painful to think about. But if you send in an in-law, assuming that this is a healthy, loving dynamic between the two people and not that like classic momster-in-law type dynamic, but if it's a healthy, loving relationship, the the beauty of the in-law is that it's somebody that is super close to them and loves them, but is not their child. And I do think that that can make a difference for some people where like for me, I have been able to have these conversations successfully with my mother-in-law and my father-in-law because I have been in their life for 10 years at this point. And they definitely love me, but they didn't raise me. And there's just a, there's a different dynamic between the children you raised and then the family that you expand later as people start getting married. So freaking true. I think that would work with my mom too, is she tends to respect the in-laws quite a bit, which of course, like as a child, you're like, damn, that's super frustrating. Like, come on. But also it's not about egos. It's about what, what gets the job accomplished and what helps everybody. And that, you know, sometimes you have to put that aside and say, Hey, going for the kill, Tony. (laughs) It's all you. (laughs) Yeah. And it also can just be as simple as they don't have the history of the teenage years or the early twenties or like whatever it is that, you know, parent child relationships can bring out that is just such a unique dynamic where sometimes with the in-laws, it's just almost purely a pragmatic conversation. It's like, Hey, this is just something that unfortunately we as adults need to do. And it's important. And like, Hey, Whitney and I are handling this together right now. So why about you join us and do this too? Like, it's not just for aging. It's also when you're in your thirties, but want to make sure that if something happens to you, your loved ones are not in crisis. I love this. Okay. So we talked about probably the most important conversation with families to have. And then additionally, I know a lot of people have trouble with family members asking for money, like kind of that awkwardness. Did you find any fun tips or research uh, around that conversation? You know, I would love to say that it is fun, new tips, but when it comes to loaning loved ones money, it's all the same advice at the end of the day, where truly you should only be loaning money if you can mentally reframe it as a gift. And you need to only be loaning that money that you are comfortable parting with and never seeing again. It's a lot. (laughs) It is. And so that's something that you really do need to consider. If a loved one comes and asks you for a grand, you need to think, how much impact is that going to have on my personal financial situation? And if I never get that $1,000 back, am I okay? Because really, where the relationship breakdown starts to happen is... Not so much that you get resentful that it's not paid back. It's that you get resentful that they keep living their life and buying things that you don't think they should be buying when they owe you money. So like, excuse you going to Starbucks in the morning. Excuse you getting those (laughs) AirPods. Excuse you taking that trip. Uh, You owe me $1,000. Yeah, that's exactly how it goes. I think it's, I I like that you framed it that way too. I think it it makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I mean, you're right. Like sometimes the same advice is the best advice of like, just have those conversations and think through your own life. So it doesn't sabotage yourself. Like you got to pay attention to your own finances first. Um, So I think that's really good advice. You do. And I will say on the loanees side. So if you're asking a loved one for money, first of all, let's just acknowledge that's a painful place to be. And that's a hard place to be. And I do think it can be really helpful to come up with kind of terms and conditions of that quote unquote loan. So as the loaner, even if there are terms and conditions, I highly advocate you reframe it in your mind as a gift. But on the other side, I heard of a woman recently, I was talking to a friend of mine who said they were helping a woman with her debt payoff plan. And she had a lot of emotional pain about a $4,000 loan to a friend. And they said, well, you know, We can debt snowball this or avalanche it, whatever works better, but you can just start making incremental payments. And it was like it had never occurred to her that she could just make installment payments on that instead of just saving up $4,000 and paying back the friend. Mm. So I do think that's a really good one, too, that if you borrow that money, 
And if you just say, okay, 20 bucks a month, I'm just going to start paying you back. And that's a cadence that feels good to you and you can afford. And then your friend also feels like, hey, I'm getting some money. That's also a really helpful one too. I love that. I think that's such a great idea. Uh, the next piece that I would love to dive into as well is talking to friends about money. So awkward money conversations of differences in economics or debt or any of that kind of stuff. Um, best approach, like let's say your friend, you're trying to pay off debt, you're working on it really hard. Your friend says, yo, let's go, I don't know, on a vacation to Santorini and you truly <laughs> cannot afford it. <laughs> Great example, right? Because <laughs> we're all going to Santorini right now. I would love but- it. Oh my God. Yeah. Aaron, let's go. I'm, this is the official invite. Um, how do you, how do you start to have that conversation too? This is an example where it is very helpful if you explain your why. And again, going back to what I said much earlier in this conversation, you don't have to tell them straight up the number, but I do think it's really helpful not to say a flat out no. So one, you can go to the old compliment sandwich type routine where it's, Hey, I would love to take that trip with you to Santorini, but it's not really on my budget right now. So instead, how about when you get back, we go to that Greek place we both love. Mm. Something like that. So yes, I love you, want to spend time with you, but I can't do this thing because, and it's usually good if you give a reason. So instead, here's the alternative. Now that's a great option. But the other thing that I do think is helpful is to really be forthcoming about I'm trying to pay off one of my student loans by the end of the year. I'm trying to save up for a down payment on this house. We're trying to save up to be able to take a baller trip next year since we didn't get to go anywhere in 2020. Whatever it is, I think giving a reason, and you don't have to tie a number to your reason, but giving a reason is helpful because your friends also don't know necessarily what you're going through if you don't tell them. So they might not realize you're trying to pay off credit card debt or that you even have student loans. And... The other problem is that if you just keep saying no, two things are going to happen. One, people will stop asking, and that's a quick way to lose friends, and it is important to invest into your friendships and relationships. And two, they're left to kind of manufacture their own explanation as to why you said no. And let's be totally honest, we are very self-centered creatures, and they will probably think it's their fault as opposed to you just feeling strapped for cash. Mm, it's so true too. And I, I appreciate you sharing the two scenarios that will probably come from that and how they really easily can be avoided if you just have that upfront conversation. Yeah, they really can. And, you know, this for me is one of the more kind of both emotional and like very important from my own experience things that I talk about in the book because. I lost a lot of my friends in my early 20s because I said no all the time. I ruthlessly prioritized earning money over any other type of relationship because I had a lot of financial goals I had set for myself. I was living in New York City. You know, I moved here right after college and it's very expensive and I wasn't making a lot of money. So if an opportunity to earn, to pick up a shift or to do anything to earn money that was legal came up, then I took it. And... I said no to a lot of things and then fundamentally became an unreliable and flaky friend. And then I don't have a lot of those friendships from my early 20s anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really had to kind of reestablish adult relationships in my mid to later 20s because I had lost a lot of those original people. I feel that. I, I think I went through something very similar to when I was paying off my debt and building my business. I'd say that was probably the biggest piece is constantly saying no, getting into that like always hustle mindset. And you're right. I mean, I, I have a very similar reflection in my early 20s too, which is a bummer. Yeah. And I also think that, listen, also don't go to the extreme of what I just said and always say yes. You do have to have <laughs> some balance. It is important to balance. And I think you also have to respect your friends if they ask you to do something and you say no. And even if you provide a counter, they can still go do that fun thing that they want to do. That's also totally okay. And you just have to be okay with that as well. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I could easily talk about the friend piece all day because I think that is some of the more nuanced conversations that we have. But one of the possibly most important conversations is the one with romance, we're combining lives. We're in a new relationship. There's a lot that can go wrong with money conversations there. What are the common ones that you find? 
Well, one of the big ones I think is not being forthcoming about your financial situation before you get married. I cannot tell you the number of people that I have heard find out about debt or find out information about how much a partner has after getting married. These need to be conversations before you're engaged, preferably, but certainly before you're married, which is part of the reason I'm team prenup. I am too, but okay, tell us your philosophy because you have a very strong voice on this, which I appreciate, but why are you team prenup? Well, for one, let's just strip all the bad reputations of the prenup aside for a second. I will come back to that. And just the sheer fact that you have to be totally forthcoming, open and honest, share all your information with each other before getting married, there's no stronger position to go into a marriage from a financial perspective than having all of the information on the table. So that's one of the things I love about the prenup process. Now, the other thing, one of my favorite kind of rebrands, because truthfully, prenups have a terrible reputation and need a very good brand consultant. And I'm trying very hard to be that brand consultant. (laughs) But I think that we, first of all, have very much skewed this idea of you don't love and trust your partner if you ask them to get a prenup. Yeah. Now I would like to reframe and just point out as my attorney, when I was going through the prenup process said to me, everybody has a prenup. It's just the default laws of your state. And that's such a powerful point because when you get married, you are signing a legally binding document and therefore are merging your financial situation with someone else's. And that has a direct impact on you. You have to go to a court in front of a judge to get this relationship dissolved. Now, if you were going into business with a friend or with anyone, you would know all the terms and conditions. You would make sure that it's fair to both parties, but you're willing to sign a marriage certificate without doing the research on what that actually means if something were to go wrong. You know. And if you're fine with what your state says in terms of division of assets in the case of a divorce, okay, great. You don't need a prenup. But if one or both of you feel like, eh, this part doesn't really sit so well with me, then that's where a prenup can be really powerful. And for anyone who is already arguing with me in their head, because I know there's some of you out there, it says, listen, marriage is forever. I would never divorce my spouse. Uh-huh. That's fine. You cannot control another human being. Your spouse can always leave you. Yes. Oh my God. It's like the stats are very bleak with marriage. And I, I mean, of course I intend on being married when I do get married forever. Sure. But I'm also very open to the possibility that, you know, shit happens and that's life and it's unfortunate, but things like houses and businesses and investment accounts, like how do you want that to be divided? It's really important conversations to have. It is really important conversations, and I also think it's really important to recognize that having a prenup in no way is putting any sort of like jinx or bad juju or anything on (laughs) your relationship. And I say that just because, like, frankly, I would love the rebrand just to simply be marriage insurance. Mm. And just think of it as we do about homeowners insurance and auto insurance. You're not thinking your house is going to burn down because you have an insurance policy. You're not thinking you're going to get in a car crash because you have an auto insurance policy. You just acknowledge the existence of those potentials and you have insurance to cover it in case it does. And the prenup is basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really good reframe too. Just so I know some some context there, because I have not gone through this process, but what's the average cost like for something like this? It's a great question. And it's honestly a little bit hard to answer because it depends on factors like how complicated is your prenup and also what state are you in and how expensive are lawyers in that state. Sure. I would ballpark between three to six grand to have a prenup. And keep in mind, each of you has to have an attorney. One attorney can't represent both parties because they one attorney cannot you know, advocate for each of your best interests together. Like you each have to have your own representation. Now, one of the most effective ways to lower that cost is to do something like download a prenup template ahead of time and go through all the questions and get on the same page so that by the time you bring the attorneys in, you're like, this is what we want, draft it up. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like battling it out on the attorney's dime and on their time and racking up your bill. Mm -hmm. Do you feel... I mean, serious question. Do you feel that people maybe don't go through the prenup process is like how much that is like a financial barrier versus just like a, Oh man, I don't want to jinx my relationship. I think it's a combo. Truthfully, I like to think about it like paying an upfront lump sum on an insurance policy, Mm -hmm. as opposed to staggering out and making monthly payments. 
I do think for some people, yeah, the idea of paying even, you know, on a low end, let's say $3,000 for an attorney to draft a prenup when your assets might be pretty minimal going into a marriage feels like, eh, this isn't worth it for me. And frankly, maybe it's not. But even if you just had a consultation with somebody, that might also be financially worth it to have a conversation about whether or not this makes sense. And also keep in mind, you can make a post-nup. So you can have a post-nuptial agreement. If you reach a place, particularly if you've laid the groundwork pre-marriage, that prenups we think are important, and I acknowledge this, but right now it doesn't make a lot of sense for us, but maybe in 15 years, you know, we've both gone further in our careers, and now we're starting to have kids, and someone is deciding to step out of the workforce, and you know what? I don't really love the state's rules on child support and alimony. I don't feel like this is fair. Then that might be a time that you have a post-nup and it's an agreement that this kind of is created to make sure that you're both getting what you feel is fair and equitable for your marriage and your relationship. Yep. Agreed. 100% agreed. I like the post-nup. I love prenups. I think they're super, super important. Um, Not because I think you're planning for divorce. You are, as you say, insuring it. It's marriage insurance. It's exactly the case. Um, Beforehand, before we are like walking down the aisle, possibly getting engaged, we got to have these like other awkward money conversations too, where it's like, yo, how much money do you make? How much debt do you have? Uh, when do you, when do you start that conversation? Is that like first date status? Like, yo dude, give me your credit score. Or like, how do we delicately approach that one as well? I mean, I can only hope that we reach a point in life where people are like, Hey, what's your credit score on the first date? Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. No, <laughs> but- I mean, maybe for us, but you know, <laughs> Yes, it's certainly a way to weed out prospective people if you're a money nerd and you love talking about it. But I do think that early on, you're just getting context clues, right? Like you, mm-hmm. is somebody using a coupon? What kind of lifestyle <laughs> are we living? You know, where do they live? What kind of car do they drive? Like these are all sending signals about both values and how money gets spent. Now, the other thing, when you're talking about like, hey, it's time to have full frontal financial nudity and bear it all to each other. I like to say that that needs to happen when you look at that person and think I could marry you. Uh, So re-engagement, and there's no timeline on this. For some people, it might have been like week six. And for some people, it might have been six years. Like everybody's really different. But as soon as you think that you could commit your life to that person, whether or not that means marriage, but you could have a very long-term relationship with them, that's when you really need to start the full-on financially naked, full frontal financial nudity conversation and bear it all, including both your goals, which I think is a really critical thing to share with each other, as well as your emotional money baggage. What is your money mindset? What is your background with money? How did your parents talk about money? How did you get money as a kid? How do you spend it? And the reason it's important to talk about that kind of stuff is so that when you inevitably have money fights with your partner, which you will, it's going to happen, it can give you an insight as to why they might be reacting to certain things, as well as just give you a little bit of compassion for why they might react a certain way. Yeah. I think that's, that's everything too, is just that, that empathy for each other, but you have to take the time to understand that and ask the questions to get to that point in the book. Does it give you like good money conversations of like even uncovering your, you and your partner's money mindsets? Yes, it does. So my first book does as well. That's one of the first things that you do in the first book is kind of figure out your original blueprint, but then also in book three, it has a whole section about how to navigate this conversation. And part of it is how to ask your partner kind of those leading questions that might give you some insights as to why they're getting seemingly irrationally upset at this particular money conversation. <laughs> it's so true. Okay. Common, common uh, relationship uh, problem, I should say, or obstacle maybe that I come across often with coaching clients too, is not being on the same page with money. It, I can't get my partner to agree to possibly even the same goals. They keep blowing all the money. It's like, they don't even care about our savings. Where do we begin with that type of conversation? Well, that sort of an example is a little bit more extreme where if the two of you can't even set goals as a couple Uh at all, if you can't agree on any of the high issues, that's a bigger red flag. There needs to be some level of agreement on like the top, top line things. Just similarly to if you're getting married, you're probably having conversations about like, are we going to have kids? 
where do we want to live? And obviously this can be a changing dynamic conversation, but the high, high level money goals really need to get set together as a team. Now there's other ways to offset, like one's a spender, one's a saver. Okay, well also let's bank jointly, but then go hybrid and each of us gets an allowance and we can spend that money however we want or save that money every month so that you're not nitpicking at each other about like, why did you buy a comic book? And they're like, well, why did you go to happy hour? Like it's okay (laughs) to have different value sets. And I do think too, fundamentally, we're allowed to be married and be our own person and have different emotional relationships to money and have different goals and have different values on certain things. For me, the example that I use are weddings. You can tell I was going through something when you read the book about like, I rail against <laughs> weddings multiple times <laughs> when I was married. You do and I loved it. <laughs> oh man, I was narrating the audiobook and I stopped at one point and said to the producer, I'm like, I think I was having some feelings. Like I clearly was going through something when I wrote this <laughs> section because I just come for them and I, I had one. So it's comes from a place of knowledge and pain as well. But I do think that I use it as an example of my joke about wedding invitations is that, you know, two things come in the mail these days. It's either bills or a wedding invitation. And let's be honest, a wedding invitation is basically just a bill. (laughs) Yep. And it is. But my husband loves going to weddings because it means like getting to see his friends or getting to see his family. And he looks at it from more of like the experiential side of, hey, like a lot of my favorite people are all in one room and we could just like party and have a good time. And I'm like, why did I have to spend $1,200 to be in this uncomfortable dress and like have some really crappy alcohol and a subpar dinner? Like this is not how I would choose to hang out with these people. Agreed. So we have very different emotional connections to that. And frankly, that like weddings specifically have caused money fights for us because there have been years where we've gotten between six and 10 invitations to weddings. And I'm like, I'm not going to all of these because I would like to take an international trip this year and you can't have it all the ways. So then it, you know, starts to become a like, well, it's hard to give up going to all of these weddings. I'm like, well, I'm going to Berlin, so make a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it, I feel that. It is. And, you know, that's part of why I think it is also very important to acknowledge that even when you work as a team, even when your high-level goals are the same, even when those are your priorities, there's still going to be things that, like, always are, and it gets explained in the book, this thing that's called a perpetual problem in a relationship. Like, frankly, it's unsolvable because neither party is wrong. You just Mm. have different opinions. And the classic example of this is one person always wants to be at the airport two hours ahead of the flight. The other person wants to stroll in like 30 minutes ahead of the flight. Well, as long as you both get on the plane, no one is fundamentally wrong. You just have different preferences. Mm. Tony's totally a two hour, like drives me freaking crazy. He is that, that he's that person. And yeah, it's same thing. I, I gave in on that. I'm like, okay, if it makes you happier and a better traveler, we will be there two hours early. <laughs> and you know what? That's a big part of the conversation with fighting about money is there's certain friction points where like, you got to just let it go. You just make a decision and then you can't keep nitpicking. Right. You know, where you live is a really good example. If you buy a house or rent an apartment that is more expensive than you wanted to spend, and you're the, let's say, the chief financial officer in the relationship, and you're writing the check every mm-hmm. month, you might get mad every single month that you're spending more money than you had wanted to, but it made the other person happy. And that's an example where, like, at some point, you got to just let it go because you yep. can't let it continue to fester because that's going to then manifest in fighting with your partner. Oh, so freaking true. I I have loved all of these conversations. I could easily chat with you for a couple hours about all this because I know we just barely touched the surface, which is why I think everybody needs to go pick up a copy of your book. I mean, literally all three. They're all incredible. They're all very practical and written for somebody that like doesn't like all the, the crappy detail and like, oh, like the overwhelming data. You do such a good job of making it so easy to understand and then backing it up with yes, data points, but not just putting all of the data on it. So I have to give you props because that's so rare in the financial world. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It is very, very difficult to have these money conversations, but with Aaron's book, I know it will make it so much easier to approach. And I'm going to reapproach the conversation with my mom. So I'll keep you guys all posted on how that goes. <laughs> and I love the advanced directive party. That's oh. I might have to steal that and host one of my own. Do it. Seriously. Yeah. Let me know how it goes for you too. Um, Aaron, before we officially part ways, are you down for some rapid fire questions? Yeah, let's do it. This could be fun to see how your answers have changed over the years. I, I like this. Okay, first question. What's one purchase you recently made that has made your life better? Ooh, books. Multiple books, but I have really focused in the pandemic, especially of trying to purchase from local businesses. And I've been trying to read a lot more during the pandemic because I was like all down the reality TV rabbit hole in the beginning of this. So <laughs> books just makes my brain happy. Any particular favorites this time of year? Um, I mean, not time of year specific, but I am currently reading Hood Feminism, which it's a heavy read, but it's really interesting. And then I have uh, Hillary Burton Morgan's The Rural Diaries on deck. If any One Tree Hill fans are out there, it's Peyton Sawyer from One Tree Hill. It's her book about, you know, going and kind of, she didn't leave, leave Hollywood, but kind of leaving Hollywood to start a farm in upstate New York. And I'm like, low key life dreams. So I'm very excited about that one. Hey, make it happen. 2021. All right. Next question for you. What is your current morning routine? Oh, you know, I really tried for like a hot second to be into like, I'm going to do yoga every morning and I'm going to like, you know, do all <laughs> the good things. Listen, um, usually I'm a very slow morning person. I cannot just like jump right into work. I need about an hour, like a full hour to warm up in the morning. So I usually get up, walk the dog, have my breakfast and my coffee, take a shower, and then sometimes watch an episode of something and like really stretch out my coffee experience. And anybody who's a parent is listening to this and they're like, F you. But like, <laughs> I really like a, a slow morning and then I check my email. Which is also like productivity hack, not something you're supposed to do, but I have to start with my email. Hey, makes sense. If it works for you, do it, right? Yeah. Next question for you. We're going to say post-COVID, one location you're dying to travel to. Oh, my God. Literally anything that's open. <laughs> I know. <laughs> my husband and I were just talking about this. i like, I don't care where it is. I just want to get on a plane. We've been watching the show Ted Lasso which is like a American American football coach goes to England to coach a British football team, like soccer. And just seeing him in the airport, I was having just airport nostalgia. I'm like, listen, I just, I don't care if it's LaGuardia. Like, I just want to go hang out in an airport at this point. Like, I will take a lounge at this point, just something that feels like travel. But we had Switzerland, we had to cancel our trip to Switzerland in April. So I have been before my husband has it so I'm actually going to switch it up and say either Greece Italy or South Africa are kind of like our top three at the moment but I don't care where it is I just like I'll go to Montreal I just want to do something you sound like me dude I'm like oh take me anywhere I don't even care <laughs> I'm so desperate my poor mother-in-law was like trying to plan a family trip for next summer I'm like hey guys if we can travel internationally screw all of you like I'm I'm out of here <laughs> bye Felicia I'm out <laughs> Yep. I feel it. I feel it. All right, my friend, last question for you. In your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? Identifying what you personally actually value. And I say that because like, obviously, yes, healthy habits, like automating your savings and learning to invest and doing it early and being consistent, like all of that matters. But if you don't have a goal that's informing all of those decisions, it's kind of hard to then, there's not really a compass that's guiding them. And part of that goal needs to be based on what do you actually want? Not what the media is telling you based on advertisements that you're seeing and how good now Instagram is at aggregating like, hey, you looked at this thing three days ago. Like, don't you want it? Don't you want it? But like truly, what do you want? And that's not actually an easy question to answer for most of us. Mm -hmm to actually be that level of introspective and kind of figure it out. And also to allow yourself to grow and change. Like it is okay if 35 year old you want something very different than 25 year old you wanted. Mm. I love that answer, Erin. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for hanging out. Well, thanks for having me back. This was as always so fun. 
All right, thoughts, feelings, what'd you think? What resonated with you? If you have gotten some value from this, the greatest compliment that you can give to this podcast is leaving a five-star review and sharing it with somebody you care about. It means the world to me and it really does help this podcast get in front of more people so we can all become happy, wealthy money nerds together. (laughs) The dream life, right? All right, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it and I will see you on Friday for Five Tip Friday or next week for another episode of the Money Nerds Podcast. Bye. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.